We begin this morning a, a study of God's covenant with Abraham, and I want to begin that study by doing a high-level review of Abraham's history as recorded in Genesis chapters 12 to 25. And we're not going to make it through all of that material this morning that will probably take two or three sessions in order to get through it. Uh, we'll get through this morning, I think, uh, chapters uh, 12 and 13. And I want to do this because I think there are a couple of points that come out of a review of this history. First of all, what we see, I think, is that uh, in this history of Abraham, we find God coming to Abraham in times of, of doubt, in times of of sin in times of of trouble to reassure him with his promises and God's covenants in this history of Abraham then especially address the uh, doubts and fears and troubles that Abraham is experiencing as he is a sojourner in the land of Canaan and so Throughout this history, I think we can see that God is working with Abraham's faith. He's testing that faith. He's strengthening that faith. He's reassuring that faith. He's feeding that faith with his promises. So that's going to be our first uh, overview of the history of Abraham. And after we finish that, we'll go back and look in more detail at the covenant promises that God makes to Abraham in that history. This covenant with Abraham is probably the most important covenant in the Old Testament. Really, the uh, history begins here in Genesis chapter 12 and takes us all the way through the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. It's literally referred to hundreds of times in the scriptures. The prophets of the Old Testament continue to refer to the covenant with Abraham all throughout their prophecies. And the New Testament begins with a reference to this covenant when it talks about Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. The covenants of God with Israel at Mount Sinai and with David may be viewed, in fact, as additions to this covenant, supplemental uh, uh, covenants to this covenant of God with Abraham. It's in this covenant that God made with Abraham that he makes Israel his chosen people. And it's with this in mind then that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9 verses 4 and 5 of the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the ble eternally blessed God. Amen. This is also the covenant, of course, about which there is strong disagreement between Baptists and Reformed people. How does this covenant relate to the question of infant baptism versus adult baptism. And as we get further into it, we'll be looking at that question as well. But for now then, let's uh, go back to Genesis and let's review uh, the history of Abraham in Genesis. 
And we're going to begin here this morning with Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. This is the history of Noah and his sons immediately following the flood. Genesis 9, verses 1 to 17 are part of God's covenant with Noah after the flood. Here we find what happened to Noah and his sons after that. We have there the story of Noah's drunkenness and of the response of Ham and Canaan, his son, to that drunkenness of Noah. Sin has not been entirely destroyed. Noah himself has sinned in becoming drunk and lying naked, and his sons clearly sin against him. In fact, they manifest themselves in their sin against their father as the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent rises up again immediately after the flood, and manifests itself in the line of the seed of the woman. And so we have here sin entering that new world which God created after the flood. Nevertheless, we also have God responding to that sin with promises in verses 25, 26, and 27. We have there, first of all, his curse on Canaan. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren, and his blessing on Shem and Japheth. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Then in If we turn to Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we see this wickedness of men increasing. The seed of the serpent is growing in power and is exalting itself against God. In Genesis chapter 10, we have the genealogies of the three sons of Noah. The chapter begins with the genealogy of Japheth, which we'll say nothing about at this point. In the, uh, gene- the chapter proceeds then in verses 6 and following with the genealogy of Ham. And there are a couple of things I think that we need to say about that. First of all, that gene- genealogy mentions Nimrod. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Resen, between Nineveh and Kela. That is the principal city. So there's a lot of attention paid to this uh, man, Nimrod. He was a great man, a very great man in earthly terms at that time. He's called a mighty hunter. I've heard it said of that, that that means that he was a hunter of men, that he was a hunter, in fact, of the uh, people of God, and that he destroyed them. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. But there's not, I think, a lot of support for that idea, and so it's probably better to understand that to mean that he was a mighty hunter in the sense that he was a hunter of animals, a provider of meat, and a very uh, powerful and skilled hunter. Remember that this whole hunting um, thing was uh, very important in those days. Jacob was a man who 
uh, worked crops. We read later in Genesis, Esau was a hunter. And it was then by means of his hunting that Nimrod gained ascendancy over other men. In fact, seems to have become a leader in the whole movement to build the Tower of Babel. Verse 10 of Genesis 10 says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So he was very important in that regard, but he was a wicked man. He was from the line of the seed of the serpent, and if he was the leader in the building of the Tower of Babel, he was certainly opposed to God in that effort. This history, this genealogy, also traces the generations of Canaan, the grandson of Noah and the son of Ham. And Canaan became a very prominent and powerful person also. There were many nations that descended from uh, Canaan. In fact, it's interesting in this genealogy that though we have a couple of sons of Canaan mentioned in verse 15, in verses 16 and following, we have the nations rather than the specific sons that descended from Canaan. The Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemorite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And so we get special attention paid to Canaan also, and I think that is because it was into the land of these people that Abraham moved when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And it was with these nations and their uh, descendants that Israel had to deal when she uh, conquered the land under Joshua. So this is also development of the seed of the serpent and of wickedness in the uh, line of Noah, specifically through Ham and Canaan. In verses 21 and following, we have the generations of Shem. And this is interesting in a couple of ways. First of all, it seems that Shem was the oldest of, Nathan, of Noah's sons. If you go back to uh, chapter 9, Shem is the first son mentioned, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But here the order is reversed in chapter 10, and we begin with Japheth and go to Ham and end with Shem. And that's because the uh, writer of Genesis, Moses, is using the gen- uh, generations of Shem to transition to the history of Abraham. But the other thing that's interesting about this genealogy of Shem is that it's incomplete here in uh, Genesis chapter 10. Five sons of Shem are mentioned, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And the following genealogy traces only the generations of two of those sons, Aram, and Arphaxad. Arphaxad had two sons, Selah and Eber, and Eber had two sons, Peleg and Joktan. And we read about Peleg that the earth was divided in his day, and that probably is a reference to Babel, when God confused the languages and dispersed the 
people, the descendants of Noah, over all the earth by that means. And then we get the uh, generations of Joktan following that in verses 26 to 30. But nothing is said here about the descendants of Peleg. And that nothing is said here in chapter 10 because the generations of Peleg are found at the end of chapter 11, after the story of the Tower of Babel. And then we have the genealogy of Shem traced down to Peleg and from Peleg down to Abram himself at the end of that chapter. So the generations of Shem then are divided between Joktan and Peleg uh, by the story of Babel. And again, the reason for that is that at the end of chapter 11, the, uh, Moses is leading up to the history of Abram, which begins really in chapter 12. But what we see then is that story of Babel at the beginning of chapter 11. And this story is a story of rebellion against God, of the development of the power of wickedness, of the seed of the serpent in rebellion against God. They reject the commandment of God to fill the earth. You find that in uh, verse 4 of chapter 11, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to fill the earth. They want to stay in one place. And by their building this tower, they are challenging God himself. Let us make a tower, they say, whose top is in the heavens. This is an expression of their pride and an expression of their rebellion of the rule of God. They are seeking to cast off the yoke of God. So what we find in Genesis chapter 9, the last half, and Genesis chapter 10, and Genesis chapter 11 is another period of history that's similar to the period that precedes the flood. And we find then in Genesis chapter 11 also God responding to this development of wickedness. He brings judgment on that world of wickedness in the confusion of language at Babel, and he preserves the seed of the woman in the last half of chapter 11 uh, through the generations of Peleg and taking us down then to Abram. Abram is God's response to the wickedness of the world at the time of Babel, and uh, indeed also following that time. Now, one more note about this, the genealogy of Abram, then, in the last part of chapter 11. We read in connection with that, Abram and Nahor took wives. That's Nahor is Abram's brother. Verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah, 
but Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so immediately we have the key to the problems of Abram's history. Abram and Sarai are the seed of the woman. It is through them that God intends to preserve his covenant and his cause in the world. It is through them that God is to bring forth the ultimate seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, and Sarai is barren. She has no child, and she cannot have a child. She cannot bring forth a son. This is the central problem of Abram's history. And this information, then, at the end of chapter 11, leads us on to the history of Abraham as recorded in chapters 12 and following. And we find, of course, that that history of Abram revolves around the uh, promise of God that he will have a son. And this son whom God promises to Abram is essential to the fulfillment of God's covenant with him. And the various covenant makings which God has with Abram throughout this history are God's answer to Abram's weakness of faith and God's way of shaping and strengthening that faith of Abram in his covenant promises. So let's look then at chapters 12 and 13. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram to leave Haran. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. This is God's response, part of God's response to the wickedness of the world at the time of Babel and following as well. God calls him to leave his family. When Abram moved from Ur of the Chaldees, his family went with him, and they all moved together up to Haran. But now, Abram is called to leave Haran, and he has to leave at least part of his family behind. Only Sarai and Job and Job's wife go with him to the land of Canaan. And that in itself was a difficult thing for Abram. We have difficulty today sometimes leaving our families. But for Abram, this would have been more difficult. The whole idea of family and clan and so on was a very uh, prominent notion, a very important notion to men of that time. And God calls him to forsake his family and go with him uh, to the land of Canaan. And so God blesses him in this chapter. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're not going to look at those promises in detail. We want to note only one thing here, that really these promises, though there's no mention of a covenant, are promises which relate specifically to God's covenants with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and chapter 17. And again in chapter uh, 12, verse 7, after Abram has moved from Haran to Canaan, God comes to him again. The Canaanites are in the land, Abram finds, verse 6. And the Lord appears to him and says to him, 
to your descendants I will give this land. So God speaks another promises, promise to him and says, this is the land I'm going to give to your descendants. And Abram responds to that promise with, by building an altar and offering up sacrifices, undoubtedly of thanksgiving to God for that promise, but also uh, recognizing the necessity of the blood of the covenant. So what we have here in Genesis chapter 12 is God pronouncing blessing on Abram in this difficult context of moving away from his family, going to a land where he's a stranger and a sojourner, where the Canaanites fill the land, the wicked Canaanites fill the land, and speaking to him in the context of those um, Canaanites then, his promise that he will give to him this land, which now belongs to the Canaanites. And speaking of his descendants, his seed, it's the same word. So that's Genesis chapter 12. Then if we go to Genesis chapter 13, this chapter begins with uh, a dispute between Abram and Lot. Abram and Lot have both grown very rich in livestock and in silver and in gold. And they find that the land in which they are uh, feeding their livestock can no longer support all the livestock. And so there uh, arises a dispute between the servants of Abram and the servants of Lot. And Abram proposes that he and Lot separate. And he gives to Lot the choice of the place to go. Abram was the senior person here. Lot was his nephew, and Abram uh, was also the one to whom God had made the promise that the land would be his, and yet Abram uh, humbles himself and allows Lot to make the choice of land here. And Lot chooses the best land, the land of the Valley of the Jordan, but also the land which uh, was inhabited especially by Canaanites, and uh, the land in which Sodom and Gomorrah stood. And Lot, of course, found himself in spiritual trouble because of this choice that he had made. But that left Abram alone. Now he's separated from Lot, and the only family he has with him now is Sarai, his wife. Furthermore, he's still dwelling among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, verse 7 of chapter 13. And he must have begun to wonder about the promises made to him. God had said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land. And instead of uh, Abram uh, being preserved in this land, and be increasing in this land, uh, he has lost Lot, he has no descendants, and there are obvious problems for the fulfillment of this promise of God to him. And so God comes to him again in Genesis 13 with his promises. Genesis 13 verses 14 to 17. 
And again, there's no mention of the word covenant here. And there's no formal covenant making here, but the blessings which God pronounces on him are covenantal blessings, blessings which he mentions again uh, in his actual covenants in chapters 15 and 17. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Here's a new promise. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So we have Abram then uh, receiving this uh, re repetition of the promise of a seed and of the land, and God adding now to that promise that his descendants will be as innumerable as the dust. And Abraham responds again to this blessing of the Lord by building an altar. Verse 18, Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So we see, at least in these uh, first two uh, chapters of Abram's history, how God is dealing with the um, seed of the serpent and dealing with the seed of the woman to preserve the seed of the woman from the wickedness of the seed of the serpent and how he's focusing his promise now on Abraham and how he's dealing with Abram's faith, with the troubles and the problems that Abram is facing in his life. This is the grace of God to Abram. He recognizes the temptations and the difficulties that Abram is encountering in his uh, place in the land of Canaan, and he comes to Abraham with these reassuring promises, just as he comes to us today with his promises in our troubles and temptations, and reassures us that he has not forgotten us, that he has not forgotten his covenant, that he has not forgotten his promises, that he will do for us what he has been saying for many, many years he will do for us. It may be that we have to wait, as Abraham did, for the fulfillment of God's promises, but that does not mean that God is slack concerning his promises, but that he is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any of us should perish. May God bless you with his word.